into the moth light. Hello and welcome to Into the Moth Light, a podcast dedicated to artists' moving image, experimental film, festivals, curation and installation art. This time, an interview with Scottish artist filmmakers Mark Lycan and Emma Dove. The latest collaboration, 1300 Shots, is a single-take portrait film that returns two ex-patrons of Dundee Cinema, The Steps, to the favourite seats 20 years after the cinema was decommissioned. A still camera observes those ex-patrons, the artist Law and the musician Vex, watching one last film. They both still live in Dundee, but I Mm. think they hadn't realised that The Steps was still kind of in some way functioning. Mm. And they hadn't been back, even though they lived just down the road. Yeah. They hadn't been back for 20 years either. So I think it was really quite appealing for them, Mm. the idea of of getting to go back and watch a film there. I found out that the steps was actually still there and it's completely untouched. It was uncanny walking back into the space again. Like the last time I'd been in there was, you know, kind of 1997. And I walked back in in 2019 and it's unchanged. We also discussed the work they made during residencies on the Black Isle and the Cromarty Firth, where they explored the relationship between nature, industry and rural life. My first question, as always, was when did they first discover experimental film? Into the Moth Light. Yeah, the first thing that um, comes to mind for me um, is while I was at uni, but it wasn't it wasn't through university. Um, but my sister Katie was an artist and. I used to go and um, visit her. She had a little caravan that she that was just outside of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of just tucked away little spot in the woods outside Glasgow. And I remember going to visit her. And she was good pals with Luke Fowler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I remember she had a copy of Our Divided Selves. Is, Is that, that it? Anyway. We watched it together in Katie's caravan. And I remember like just being kind of like I'd never seen a film like that before and and being kind of like like perplexed and and totally captivated by it at the same time and and also kind of because it it just defied kind of everything that I was learning at uni because I did quite a conventional film and media degree so it was all kind of um very much like this is what you do to make a good film in a sort of um you know i suppose conventional um documentary filmmaking kind of style so to then see that just totally turned on its head watching luke's film was i remember yeah i just remember being like i don't know what that was but that jumps to mind as like my first ever kind of or something that really stuck with me. But that's a fine starting point and something delightful about the fact that you were in a caravan with your sister somewhere outside Glasgow. <laughs> Usually it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, very late night Channel 4 for people when they see that that kind of first, 
you know, unusual <laughs> films. So that's quite an interesting setting. And how about you, Mark? Because um, I, I, I don't know, did you study film at all as well? Or did you kind of come into it through your uh, other artistic adventures? I've always been a massive film fan, but didn't really think about making film. Or didn't think I wa- I would be able to make film until I met Emma in 2012. I'd always been super interested in film and an avid kind of cinema goer. But no, I didn't, I didn't go to university. Um, and I kind of came into things through a kind of unusual route. I was a graffiti artist for years and years and then did electronic music as a hobby and then started to go down the kind of gallery route with things. Do you, do you have a recollection of like... I don't have a recollection of a particular experimental film, um, but I was really into Tarkovsky and the kind of pacing mm-hmm. of his films. Um, and I did see it really late at night, kind of on Channel 4. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of that, that, that classic. And I've always meant to look back at the kind of TV scheduling for particular years and to find out when it was. But um, I saw Solaris, and that had a massive, massive... Um, impact on me particularly the more abstract kind of scenes of the planet's surface and things and again that that kind of pacing and that's kind of carried through until uh, into the the work that I think I make. I I like how you say that you know I mean it wasn't an experimental film like probably at (laughs) the time. I know (laughs) yeah. On reflection now Uh you're but I can definitely see Tarkovsky uh, in the work that you do. And in fact, I think probably about 75% of the people that we've talked to for this podcast will uh, reference Tarkovsky um, at, at some point. So, Mark, your, your first black and white film, um, Scar History, um, 2012. So at, at what point did you decide to pick up a camera and, and start to investigate the, the moving image like that? Um, well, interestingly, that's a kind of cameraless film in some respects. It's um, it was made up of a thousand dolphin photo ID photographs um, that the uh, the team at the Lighthouse Field Station in Cromarty had taken. They um, do a lot of work with the local. Well, that sounds like they do workshops with dolphins. <laughs> um, they were <laughs> um, they have a research station in Cromarty, and they monitor the local or the, the bottlenose dolphin population. And the best way to ID them is to photograph the um, dorsal fins. They're a kind of history in, in the, uh, like into themselves. They have um, marks and scars and things on the, uh, on the dorsal fins. Um, and as they come back every year, then they kind of gradually get more scarred and things. So, it, um, so the, the title of the film comes from, comes from that. I didn't really have, didn't have a camera at that point, so and I really wanted to make a film, so it was kind of a way to um, to make still images move, I guess. And it became quite a frantic film um, because you have these just these single shots, but um, when they were edited together, in some sections it seemed like an animation, um, even though there were different dolphins, it had a really peculiar kind of effect. I was having a look earlier. Emma, at some of your photography, and again, there's there's a beautiful stillness in your work, but there is movement, and and again, Mark, listening to some of your your sound pieces as well, that there's certainly a commonality and and that way to explore, you know, the natural world 
and how we interact with it and, and the movements within that. So at what point did your individual practices start to, to, to blend and, and come together? What was the starting point? The starting point where we where we started to work together was for a, a commission that was part of the year of Imagining Scotland in 2013. So we put in a, a proposal for a film as part of that called Mirrorlands. We had met in 2012 in Cromarty at the Lighthouse Field Station and we decided that we'd like to go back there and, and do some work, some more work there together. When I was at, at university, I was um, quite interested in the representation of the natural world um, and I'd, I'd sort of written a um, dissertation proposal for a dissertation that I never wrote <laughs> about representation in um, natural history films. But it had kind of um, piqued, I think, my interest in how like images of the natural world are fed to us through um, nature programming. In our proposal for uh, Mirrorlands, the starting point for that was to kind of flip a lot of those representational conventions on their head and use that almost as like an alternative set of conventions to approach how we were going to film and document the natural world around the Black Isle, which is also an interesting place to look at, like sort of natural Scotland in a sense, because I suppose when people think about natural Scotland, they kind of think about like um, the kind of raw empty landscapes you know kind of big mountains and dramatic scenery whereas I think the Black Isle is it's a bit gentler isn't it it's gentler but it's it's got a different kind of drama going Mm. on because there's an interesting mix between the industry that inhabits the Cromarty Firth and natural I suppose the natural world in terms of like you know this firth that has a huge amount of industry also has the largest bottlenose dolphin population uh, in the UK. Mm. So it was interesting kind of to to look at that as a starting point um, and to be working alongside uh, the researchers in the Lighthouse Field Station in Cromarty who were studying, you know, very much this relationship. So in terms of us working together... Do you want to say something about how we approach that? Well, I think that the, um, the, you know, kind of going back to you asking us about experimental films, so because our background isn't really experimental film, um, it took us making Mirrorlands with this kind of set of conventions that we were following to suddenly find that we were part of a kind of continuum um, of experimental filmmaking. So when people saw our film, you know, they would say, oh, you must like Phil Niblock's work or James Benning or Chantal Ackerman or or people that work with um, time and duration. So it was really interesting for us. So we were suddenly fed all these references. So it it kind of felt a little bit like kind of reverse engineering our influences after the fact kind of thing. So, um, So the conventions that we were looking at, I guess, that informed the film, we were the, the sort of voice of God narration we wanted to replace that with voices um, of place in natural history filmmaking there's very much a kind of constant fast-paced um drama to 
the the edit um, and so we decided to um, to flip that and to really focus on locked off like long take shots uh, where anything that's that's happening in terms of of drama is happening within the frame rather than being created through editing <laughs> but that really started I think for both of both of us an, an interest in using that as a technique using a long take um, it's such a different way to approach making a film because there's a lot more time spent kind of thinking about the in, the single shot you know rather than I suppose gathering a lot of details that try to tell say mm. something about a landscape you're kind of looking for locked off long take shots that will kind of say that in a different way mm-hmm. and also audience wise as well I mean we had no idea how people would respond to I guess the shots of that kind of duration so it's been really interesting just to to watch films with an audience as well and just to see what works and what kind of like pushes that boundary a little bit. She, she said, Alison, I don't know how you can live so so far out in the wilds in poverty. I mean, you know, it must take me just to get to you described it, Mark, as somewhere between an art film and a, a documentary. Obviously, you're, you're capturing the, the, the images and the feeling of, of that particular place. There's kind of local voices intermingled with that as well. So what was the, the approach to kind of using those local voices and, and matching that with the, the footage that you were taking at the time? Similar to the, the choice to do long take shots, I suppose voiceover narration is very much, uh, you know, a key part of any kind of nature programming but always comes from a voice of God type um, perspective in terms of it's a single um, narrator who who is kind of imparting knowledge and wisdom about mm. what you're looking at. We decided, well, what would be the kind of flip side of that would be to seek multiple voices of place um, and for those voices to have a relationship with the images, but not necessarily to like define you know what you're looking at or tell you like impart information about um each scene but to kind of have a have a relationship but not necessarily always In a literal a, sense yeah no. a literal relationship yeah. so um so yeah we started just recording lots of interviews mm-hmm. with with people living and working in that landscape. Mm. We were quite lucky in the sense that Emma's actually from the Black Isle, so we had a kind of instant in with um with some people because that's always the it's yeah. always difficult to um you spend a lot of time getting to know people and to gathering people's trust enough for them to let you, you know, stick a microphone in front of their face or a camera and just um so that that helped. And then it's the usual thing, it kind of snowballs quite quickly. So you speak to somebody and they you know, the, 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 invariably it's like, well, you should speak to Jean or Jim down the road. And 
I'll give them a call and then you go down and see Gene and Jim and then it just kind of becomes this kind of larger larger thing. And people never think they have interesting things to say, which is just kind of classic, you know. You're kind of behind the mic and people are giving you absolute solid gold stuff and they're kind of like, well, I don't even know why you're talking to me, you know. <laughs> but you're behind the mic kind of going, yes, <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> How important is it for you to really immerse yourself in a landscape and, and a place? I think residential uh, is a really important part of, of your, your working process. So is it important for you to kind of live it and, and breathe it uh, as, as a way to capture that landscape? I think so. Certainly in the kind of, I mean, editing things, I guess, can be done elsewhere, but but actually... Being able to react really quickly, you know, to, to speak to Jean and then to be able to go down and speak to Jim and to just kind of... Yeah, I mean, when we were making that film, we did move up to the Black Isle for a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, so that we were immersed, you know, and able to kind of take time because we, we were living in Glasgow at the time. Mm -hmm. And then after Marylands, um, a couple of years later, we were invited to do a residency with the stove in Dumfries. And it just seemed like the obvious thing for us to move down to the area in order to do that six-month residency. Mm. Because, again, it was very much about working um, with the local community and, and sort of making a film that was immersed within the local community. But that was very different because this area, Dumfries and Galloway, where we've ended up staying, was actually, you know, so neither vast. of us... Um, had any existing kind of connections or relationships with here. Mm. So it was very much like moving to a new place and starting from scratch in terms of connecting with people mm. here. It kind of became part of our crazy pitch. We were just the guys that would move somewhere <laughs> for six months to do a residency. Uh -huh. And then, then if we got it, we were like, shit, <laughs> like we actually have to move now. <laughs> I don't think we'd do that again. Don't think we'd do that again. Yeah. <laughs> Into the Moth Light. Into the Let's talk about the terrestrial sea from 2015 and the Financial Times calls it a surrealistic meditation on the way that different environments encroach on each other. So again, you sort of mentioned the, the, the kind of natural habitats, the vastness of the man-made structures as well. So what, what was your approach to filming this time round how much of what you filmed was was led by what uh, captured you visually, or what was maybe kind of inspired by the ecologists that you were um, sort of shadowing and working alongside? Well, I think because it kind of actually the um, the music was made before Mirrorlands. That that was during a residency I undertook in Cromarty in twenty twelve. So that was very much a musical response, an emotional response, I guess, to the to the work. Um, into the region um, and then we made Mirrorlands some of it along a similar tact and then we went back 
to make, I guess, the film version of Terrestrial Sea. So by that time, I felt like we could hit the ground kind of running. Um, there'd been certain things that we'd saw when we were filming Mirrorlands, I guess, that, that maybe didn't quite fit that film, but, you know, like worked better for the Terrestrial Sea. I think a, a big difference with when we made Terrestrial Sea, at least the film side of Terrestrial mm. Sea, was that the music already existed and we were kind of scoring the music with visuals mm. in a way, which I remember when we when we were there filming for Terrestrial Sea, kind of con- because because you'd made that music in 2012, like having that soundtrack playing in my head when we were going, you know, around filming. Uh-huh. And so, and I think also the music does have those kind of industrial elements mm. within the soundscape. And that was something that you'd really kind of reacted to when you first arrived in that landscape uh-huh. was like how present mm. the industry is. Whereas I think a lot of local people kind of tune it out mm. because it's just so part of the everyday landscape. At times there can be maybe eight or so oil rigs lined up in the Firth with various stages of kind of refitting and work going on. So it can be kind of noisy. And these are all, all these rigs are, they're still working platforms. So the generators are running and people are refitting them. And so there's a noise emanating from the rigs, um, which is kind of counter to, to, to how I imagined um, Cromery, you know, being a kind of seaside town might, might kind of sound. So I think all of that music was built on the kind of drone drones that, that were kind of issuing from, from the rigs. It was fun. I think I really enjoyed yeah. kind of working in that more abstract way in terms of the edit kind of layering Mm. video and um a lot of the material that we filmed was maybe more kind of close-up and abstract type Mm -hmm. material of water and um layering kind of industrial shots of industry and the kind of slow movement of like cranes and lights and Mm -hmm. like it was it was quite fun to then work in that in that way because there was yeah, a structure there with the music already mm-hmm, being in mm-hmm. place so, so you knew that you knew the music started and ended like this and like that and so it's kind of it's it's a real kind of jigsaw yeah puzzle i guess kind of different way of different way of working one of the reviews that i read they say emma of your uh poetically assured and sensitive visuals curiously suggestive of a celluloid barbara hepworth that must have been quite nice to read. I think it's always so interesting, you know, how people do interpret your work in words, you know, mm. because you're so kind of immersed in making something and also get so caught up in all of the kind of details that are like driving you mad or, you know, just sometimes get too caught up in like tiny things that are, you know, you you kind of mm. over... Um, analyze when you get to a certain point of the edit don't you and just kind of lose sight of it and then so it's really interesting when it kind of gets put out into the world and people who who are kind of seeing it with with fresh Mm. eyes but also kind of 
are able to kind of interpret film, you know, with words in a much more kind of uh, <laughs> in a more eloquent way, eloquent than, way than I could ever kind of think to. So that's that's really interesting and nice when you yeah well when people say nice things. Yeah, I mean if if the emotion can convey, I mean that's I think that when you finish a film, you you still have your edit head on, don't you? And so it's. It's, it's become a technical exercise to a large extent. And so you see the joints still. It takes a while for those joints to go away and for you to even remotely be able to see something as a whole and not as a, a series of deft cuts. So it is always interesting when people feed that back to you. And, and again, it's, it's kind of... And see things that you hadn't intended. Not to say they're not there. I mean, it's there for, it's there for the audience, so... And let me ask you a question about that editing process. Um, so you're you're two artists, filmmakers that, that live together and, and work together and you, you get back home and I imagine, Mark, that that piece of audio that you'd produced was something that was quite precious to you. And likewise, Emma, when you come back with the, the visuals and you did say, you know, you don't want this to, to look like a, a music video sometimes when you put sound to something that it just does not work so how, how do you manage to kind of collaborate to come up with the work that you're both satisfied with where you think the visuals and the audio really kind of um, support each other and work together I mean the interesting thing that I've always found about like us working together is that you know it's kind of always you're all, you're always making something that is something that you would never have otherwise kind of made if you were just working you know individually mm. and so talking I guess about about terrestrial sea again as an example like working with your music as a start point to kind of guide the visuals and I suppose it's also important to say that even though with that film you know kind of Mark had made the music and then we um, create the film around that we still did very much collaborate in terms of the the filming process in terms of going and gathering mm. that material in terms of talking about things that caught our eye within the landscape and how to kind of um, capture those because because I think also Mark saw the landscape quite differently than mm. I did you know with me having grown up there and you being kind of more of a like a new, a fresh eye on that landscape. Yeah. I think technically there are times where we, we each have an individual studio, so there's times where we work on things apart. And then, I mean, there's levels of collaboration, I think, with us. Um, there are times where we, we're, we're directly collaborating. There are times where we are sometimes working for the other one. Yeah. And then within that, there's always, because we do live together, even if we're working on individual projects we have the benefit of being able to let the other one see the work and to get their perspective on it so there's kind of there's always this kind of creative discussion going on even if we're not strictly collaborating there is that kind of element to it which feels really unique and quite and quite special we sort of end up developing a bit of a shorthand um we have a similar sense of timing um, and there's often times where if Emma's actually editing and I'm backseat editing, 
Um, there'll be times I'll be I'll, I'll be just about to say, oh, can you maybe try? And then she's done it before I've even said it. So it's kind of, it's like it works quite well. Or I can just take credit for it. I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I think the core of like working well together mm. is being able to like communicate efficiently mm. with each other. And that, you know, can sometimes be a challenge when you're working with your partner because you don't communicate in the same way as you would with, you know, a, a like colleague. A, a colleague or a friend or someone who was mm. like, come in to work with you for the day and then leave again. Yeah. You, there's not that divide. Uh -huh. So I think like um, that initially, I think was the biggest challenge in working together was trying to like to communicate professionally with each other which is you know it's always going to be like different to how you would communicate mm. with others um but also like kind of like creating a work-life divide because if you're working on something together and you're living together then it can kind of just become like your entire world and it's hard to like stop communicating mm. about it and then you just sort of feel like you can't ever escape it yeah but I think I'm not entirely better. sure we've got better at it but I'm not entirely sure that we've we've managed to successfully negotiate that divide yeah. yeah well we live in the middle of the woods now so we uh -huh. can at least just like run out of the house and escape into the woods for a bit into the moth light into the moth light podcast Let's talk about 1300 Shots. So, a single take portrait film that returns two ex-patrons of Dundee Cinema The Steps to their favourite seats 20 years after the cinema was decommissioned to observe them watching one last film. I've been lucky enough to see an extract of this, a beautiful, interesting idea and, and, and really... really well executed. Tell me about the sparks um, of this idea and, and, and how you worked with um, these two expats of this particular cinema. Well, like I was saying earlier, um, I didn't study film, but um, I've always been a ridiculous film fan. So um, in Dundee, in the late 80s, there was a cinema called The Steps, which was part of the Central Library within the Wellgate Centre. Um, shopping mall in Dundee and The Steps was an art house cinema would show you know world cinema classics hard to get hold of films so for me it was basically my film school it was just a kind of window into a complete different different world and it was cheap to get into and so The Steps closed down in 1997 when the DCA opened the cinema kind of went to the, the, the DCA. Um, but there was two two characters in particular that I would see at almost every showing of a film that I would go to, and they would always sit down the front. I didn't know who they were, and they seemed a bit intimidating, particularly the guy. Uh, <laughs> and I later became friends with them, really good friends with them. I found out that The Steps was actually still there because it's kind of part of the library. Even though it kind of, you know, it, it's, it stopped being a kind of commercial cinema, it's still used, it's still active, and it's completely untouched. 
it, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it was uncanny walking back into the space again. Like the last time I'd been in there was, you know, kind of 1997. And I walked back in in 2019 and it's unchanged. Um, it's still used for conferences and things by the university. So luckily, um, it's still it's still actually there. Not an entirely active space, but not a dead space either. So the notion was to um, was to bring back these two characters and have them sit in their um, in their old seats again and watch a film, but turn the camera um, on those guys and it become a kind of active portrait of those guys watching. Mm-hmm. watching a film so um and luckily they they agreed <laughs> how did you pitch it to them i pitched it to mike to vex to start with i just um i just asked him and he said yeah like it was just i just kind of said can i film you watching a film for like two hours and he was just kind of like yeah <laughs> well, i mean he him and laura laura law um they both still live in Dundee, but I mm. think they hadn't realised that the steps was still kind of in some way functioning. Mm. And they hadn't been back, even though they lived just down the road. Yeah. They hadn't been back for 20 years either. So I think it was really quite appealing for them, mm. the idea of of getting to go back and watch a film there. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're both artists, so it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't too outrageous an idea. When you watch the piece, so it's in quite close up um, of Vex and Law, and you can almost read the film from their facial expressions, and you know, when their 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 eyes will widen, and at the same time, there's drinks and snacks going on. So, what what was the process to kind of try and capture those emotions um, in a dark space as well, which would have added some complication, I think. I guess we didn't know. I mean, they neither of them had seen the film before. No, I think that was quite important. They hadn't seen, they hadn't watched the film before. Um, they used to be a couple, and they're they're still they're still friends, and they have children together. So there's a dynamic, and perhaps a tension there already. I think when we were kind of preparing to film the shot, we did talk about just not like that. You know, I suppose neither of them are are actors and we didn't Mm. want them to feel like they had to act. I think that they almost kind of were interested in slightly replaying their youth in terms of what they used to do when they go to went to the steps. So like Mike brought some beers and like, you know, Laura had some snacks with her. And, Mm. you know, so they, in a sense, were kind of almost keen to like act out their you know, their previous selves in a way. I think that kind of thing was a bit more sort of self-conscious on my part. I mean, I intentionally um, bought beer for Mike and fruit for Laura so they would have something to do. And, and as, as Emma said, it, this, this would have been how they surreptitiously acted in the steps because this, there was no eating or drinking in the cinema in the steps at all. Um, that was a complete no-no. So you did have to sneak things in and... It just works so much better when people are active, when they have something to do and you're, you're filming them, I think, you know. And the, the fact that it's a silent film as well and that there's intertitles and things that they're... So you see their eyes scanning the image. I, I thought it would be good, but it just, it just worked really, really well. I think in terms of capturing their kind of 
expressions and emotions. I had mentioned to both of them, like, don't feel like you have to ignore the camera, like it's right there in front of you. You can, you know, if you want to stare straight into the camera lens, then do. It's very present. Um, but I think once they started watching the film, they, they got forgot. caught up mm. in just watching the film. And I think they were still aware that they were, you know, on camera, but it did feel like it... It was. It felt quite sort of comfortable yeah, for them. Yeah, it's a good balance. There's little micro glances and, and a little bit of um, tension there and acknowledgement of the camera. But that's that's yeah. I really like that. It's a good. It's a good mix. There are definitely times when they completely forget, and there are times where they remember, and you can see them interacting with the camera for a particularly mic for a second. And getting the sort of sound balance right was important, mm. so that we could mic them up in a way that we could still hear some of their little kind of like their movements or like whis their whisper to each other at points. Mm. And so be to be able to sort of capture that within the sound space of the film and like and get that balance right. Was yeah, it's one of those funny ones. It's a single take film, but the amount of editing that actually went on, particularly sound wise, is ridiculous, you know, but it's all invisible. It's all kind of hopefully seamless. So. Let's talk about Law, Vex and the Steps, so the, the companion piece. And, and this is a character study um, of the two people that we, we see in 1300 shots. And it, it starts with some archive video from 1988. And it, it, is the Law and Vex in that particular film? So there, there's some live music going on outside um, a, a, a shop of some kind and a bit of graffiti in the background. So do you want to paint the picture for the starting point and how that developed into this character study? September the 18th, 1988. Um, I was 16. I was on the Murrogate in Dundee that day. I walked up the Murrogate. I came across four quite particular looking characters busking outside John Menzies. The only reason I knew it was actually busking was that it said on, it had been chalked in the ground, yes, this is busking. Um, so there was, a, there was a guy, a guy playing guitar who turned out to be Vex and then there was somebody called Law um, who was chalking on the ground and then there was a, another guy called Tentatively, tentatively A Convenience who's dressed entirely in a suit made entirely of zips. Um, and there's another lady called Laura Trucial who was had a suitcase full of effect pedals and things. I didn't shoot that footage. That footage only turned up um, a few years back, but I was actually there that day as a 15-year-old standing in the, the audience. So it's an unbelievable, like actual video footage of my memory of of that day. So that was the first time that I encountered um, Law and Vex, Mike and Laura. I would then subsequently see them at the Steps um, Theatre um, watching films. It was years later until I put two and two together and realised that the people that were busking were also the same characters down the front at the Steps. 
Um, it's probably worth mentioning that when we talk about busking, I mean, the, the, the noise that they're making is far from a Beatles cover um, and the police actually stop them and, 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 and move them on, which is also captured in, in that video as well. Yeah, it was my first um, my first taste of experimental music, I guess. I didn't know that's what it was. I didn't even know if I liked it, um, but it made a real kind of lasting impression on me. I mean, busking's legal or it certainly was amplified in Scotland at the time, but yeah, they still get they still get moved on. So that this character study, and and I suppose Emma, in, in the same way that you introduced Mark to the, the 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 Black Isle, he's introducing you to to this cinema space and 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 these characters. So was it quite rewarding for you to spend time with um, Vex and Law and and film them in their individual homes? Um, and, you know, engaging with their own individual art practices. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just kind of, I suppose, going back to Mark describing how um, the steps made an impact on him as a as a teenager. Mm. Um, that's certainly something that, like Mark, I think it's an act of reference for you mm. in that, you know, before um, Mark had the idea to make this film or to go and, and um, work with um, Law and Vex on this film. I was very much aware of them. You know, I, we'd never met before, but mm. I was very much aware of them and aware of the steps because you did, you know, used to talk about steps quite often and, yeah. you, you know, memories of going to see films there and talk about this memory of, you know, this of this, um, of this busking mm. scene. So I kind of had an impression um of these people and this place um you know mark described particularly uh mike vex as being slightly intimidating and so <laughs> I, I think i was like there was certainly a a, a slight kind of not apprehension but mm. like i wasn't sure you know i wasn't sure what to what yeah what to expect um but i think like particularly walking into Walking into Mike's flat, I think, like, it just says so much about him as a person. It's like an absolute treasure trove mm. of... Stuff. Stuff. Like, there's just stuff everywhere. But I feel as though someone who has lives within that environment could never really be... Um... All that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like um, daunting. There's over two hours worth of interviews with Mike and it's all great stuff but when I was editing it I realised that actually I didn't really need it you know when you're walking through his house his space it's all there it's kind of it just felt like having his kind of improvised guitar music over the top was probably enough it just becomes it just would have been overloaded with information I think if um, if we tried to kind of hammer interview material over the top. I think that's always something that we're always quite conscious of and mindful of is kind of listening to the material itself in the sense that it tells you what it needs, you know, and it, it, it always seems that if you try to put music or words onto film and it's not meant to be there, the film, the images reject it. Yeah, we always kind of try to listen to that, you know, you know when it's not working. And yet you still kind of try and hammer and chisel away. But then 
Well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the the completed version of 1300 Shots and um, hopefully Love X and the Steps as as the companion to it. Mark and Emma, it's been a a joy uh, to speak to you both today. Uh, Thank you very much for sharing your work and for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. Thanks, Jason. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.